This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Just ahead, we talk to April Thames. She is a professor of psychology and psychiatry at USC. Her research ties the coronavirus death toll and the death of George Floyd to a common issue, racism in America, the stain of slavery that continues into the 21st century. She'll explain just ahead. But first, we take you inside the Minneapolis courtroom when Judge Peter Cahill delivered the verdict against former police officer Derek Chauvin. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person 019. Those three guilty verdicts against former police officer Derek Chauvin now facing decades behind bars. Ahead, we'll get some perspective on what this means for race relations in America, a moment that became even more defining last May 25th, Memorial Day of 2020, when that Minneapolis police officer put his knee on George Floyd's neck, sparking a Black Lives Matter movement nationwide. Darnella Frazier, 17 at the time, recorded what others at the scene had also witnessed. Please, 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 I can't breathe. Please, man. Well, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, least man. I can't breathe. I've been trying to hear about this. So you can breathe, look at from May 25th of last year in Minneapolis, the final moments of George Floyd. April Thames is a professor at University of Southern California. She is joining us from Long Beach. That recording now very much part of 
race relations in America. As you hear that and see it again, what are your thoughts? I just have a visceral reaction to that video. I've seen it a number of times. I've heard it. And every time I start to tremble because it is such a reminder of the historical injustices that have happened in the black community for several years. This is just really the first time that someone was brave enough to record this, you know, so that people could really see what has been going on for many, many years. So it's not surprising what happened with George Floyd, but nevertheless, just the video, listening to it, watching it, it just reminds the community of the horrors that have been going on. And, of course, it was recorded by a 17-year-old, Darnella Frazier. She was out walking with her cousin, just trying to get something to eat. She pulled out her smartphone, and, of course, the rest is now history. Thank goodness that she did that, because most people would be too afraid, particularly a young black woman, knowing the history of how black people have been treated by police officers in that town, it's incredibly brave that she pulled out that camera. Let's go inside the courtroom during closing arguments as the prosecution contended that Derek Chauvin needed to be found guilty on all three counts. Of course, he was. This is what happened inside the courtroom. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nine minutes and 29 seconds. During this time, George Floyd struggled, desperate to to breathe, to make enough room in his chest to breathe. But the force was too much. He He was trapped. He was trapped with the unyielding pavement underneath him, as unyielding as the men who held him down. The motto of the Minneapolis Police Department is to protect with courage and to serve with compassion. But George Floyd was not a threat to anyone. He wasn't trying to hurt anyone. He wasn't trying to do anything to anyone. Facing George Floyd that day, that did not require one ounce of courage, and none was shown. From the closing arguments inside that Minneapolis courtroom, what did we learn from the trial? Professor Thames? We learned from the trial that the principles of, you know, serving with, you know, courage, those don't apply to black people. And this has been known for many years. Um, What we, how we think the police is supposed to protect and to serve, that doesn't always happen in certain communities. And so what I think the trial highlighted was, yes, these are the aspirational principles of how police officers should should operate, but that doesn't always happen in the black community. And, And the second part is just how overreactive and disproportionate the response from Derek Chauvin to George Floyd was relative to his threat status. He was not a threat as 
was demonstrated in the closing arguments, but the use of force was so disproportionate relative to the situation. And this is unfortunately all too common, but I think that those closing arguments hit those two points. If this moment had not been recorded, do you think that the outcome would have been different? Do you think Derek Chauvin would have been acquitted? Absolutely. Without a doubt, if this had not been recorded and we had not had this put front and center and for society's reaction and people standing up and saying no more of this, no more of these injustices, he would have been acquitted. I have, I have no doubt in my mind. So why is it, as you look at past cases, more often than not, the police officers charged with any criminal wrongdoing is acquitted? Because this is the first time that we've had such a public outcry, and it has come from all communities. So not just communities of color, but we have, you know, groups of, you know, white people, you know, Asian people. They are standing up for the black community. And there is something about this video. There is something about the emotions that it elicited across the nation that is different than previous cases where the injustices were still the same. But it wasn't captured and it wasn't um, society's response to it was not as large as it was in this case. In a CNN interview that aired shortly after the verdict was read, felonious Floyd, George Floyd's brother, had this to say. This is monumental. This is historic. This is a pivotal moment in history. And all I can think about is Emma Till. I think about Sandra Bland. I think about Miss Carr with Eric Garner. It's so many people. We have new people being killed. Dante Wright. I think about Jacob Blake. I think about Philando Castile. All of these people, they're all dead. You got people that live near me. Pamela Turner, she's dead. And we all need justice. We're all fighting for one reason, and it's justice for all. And I think today has been an occasion where people can celebrate but tomorrow it's back to business because we have to stay steps ahead of everything and we'll keep pushing and we'll keep pushing and like Reverend Al say we'll keep fighting and of course you can hear the emotion in his voice uh, coming just a few moments after that guilty verdict of Derek Chauvin April Thames as you listen to that keep on fighting moving ahead what are the challenges? Well, one of the challenges, and this is more of what I fear versus based on any factual data, but I'm concerned that society, because we have taken a breath and we've seen, okay, you know, justice was served in this case. I'm concerned that this will be forgotten. And so when these things come up again and they're not recorded, you know, are we going to fight the fight as was happened with with George Floyd because this was on video? 
or is this somehow going to be well you know we we went ahead and we um you know uh found him guilty on these charges and so therefore you know justice has done its job for the time being and all the while as we've heard through all those names this is continuing to happen on a day-to-day basis so i just hope that society doesn't forget you know just because justice was served in this case doesn't mean that it's always going to be served and so i do agree that there is going to be a push there is going to have to be more wide recognition of taking a closer look at systemic issues of racism that are embedded in practices and there has to be more of a push for bias training and for people to you know interact with each other within society and really be critical of how certain people were treated under certain circumstances and not just deferring to authority. At the outset, I'm going to admit that this is a far too simplistic question, which we know is a complex problem. But why is there racism in America? There is racism in America. I can tell you, I'm a neuroscientist in a lot of my research, and we know that from birth, our brain has to categorize to learn things. That's how we take in information. That's how we learn about the world around us. And that's how we do not become overwhelmed with information overload is that we have a natural tendency to categorize. It is society that places the value on what these social groups are. And there were some really fascinating experiments back in the early 60s demonstrating that little kids can be put in an experimental situation to exhibit discriminatory behaviors. And these were called the Jane Iowa experiments. And what I think has happened is that society places, hasn't placed a value on black lives. And it is until now that we are saying black lives matter. Well, they've always mattered, but it has not been regarded in that way by society. So that is how racism starts. It starts with our automatic tendency and need to group people. And then you place a societal cultural value on that particular group. And that sort of covers why racism has persisted, why it unfortunately is likely to persist. And it is not until we become more aware and recognize the ways in which racism can percolate within systems, healthcare systems, educational systems, and so forth, that we can actually start to address it. Well, if you could take that one step further, because a week and a half after George Floyd's death in June of last year, you said that his death and the pandemic really shines a light on the, the longstanding social inequities and injustices toward African-Americans. Explain. Well, I think what we saw with COVID-19 and with George Floyd are two systemic inequities that have persisted for a very long time, but they were just sort of brought to light. The COVID-19 pandemic showed us what we've already known for many years, and that is that African-Americans disproportionately suffer from chronic health conditions. And when they are likely to 
um, contract these conditions. It's often diagnosed later. They tend to have more severe symptoms. And it has nothing to do with biological inferiority. What it has to do with often is our broken healthcare system that will in turn, you know, either sort of turn people away because insurances don't cover certain things, which disproportionately impact the black community. But we even know from looking at studies across healthcare encounters that African-Americans are perceived to have higher pain tolerance. They are perceived to have, you know, quote, thicker skin. So a lot of symptoms that are that would be treated for a white individual earlier on is not until much later for African-Americans. So COVID-19 just basically brought this all to the light. And what we see is that, you know, the, the symptoms tend to be worse among African-Americans because some of the assumptions related to social distancing and all of the recommendations that were put out, these uh, these um, recommendations have a certain amount of privilege to them because, yes, I may be able to socially distance because I have a job that allows me to do that. But that's not the same for everybody. And so when we think about essential workers and people have to put themselves out there into harm's way of COVID, this is you know just one of the many factors that we saw that was happening in the pandemic that sort of brought up these health inequities. And so, as you indicated, bringing about some systemic issues and problems for the African-American communities, are you saying that black men are more likely to to die from COVID-19 than than white men? And then also looking at the issue of America's prison, which has a disproportionate number of black men inside those jails. We have seen across the statistics um, that that black Black, black men, yes, black men and black women, more likely relative to their white counterparts to die from COVID-19 and have more severe symptoms. And these are even um, among states where the population is predominantly white. You still see a disproportionate number of blacks who are getting more severe symptoms and who are dying from COVID. So... Um, that is that is indeed the, the case when we look at the statistics. And so that combined with what we're seeing so many African-American men in jail, the impact that has on families, on wives, on children. Oh, absolutely. The levels of incarceration and how many black men are incarcerated is astounding. And so not only are there risk of contracting covid there's risk of contracting all kinds of conditions that disproportionately impact the black community. And so you have two things. One is that what happens when, if, when and if these men are released from prison with these chronic conditions and trying to navigate a system where it's, you know, reentry into society is not really um, well supported in in the way reintegration programs occur. Second, we have black families and and particularly with COVID and incarceration hugely impacted because kids are growing up 
without a father. Um, black women are disproportionately burdened as being caregivers, as being the sole support um, for watching, you know, kid, you know, their kids. And so we see the mental health crisis. It really is coming as it pertains to the pandemic. And when we think about these particular groups that have been in the crossfire of all of these health inequities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with April Thames. She is an associate professor of psychology and psychiatry at University of Southern California. She's joining us from Long Beach If this is, as you say, a pivot point when it comes to the health issues, systemic health issues facing African-American communities and racism following the death of George Floyd, what has to change? And from your standpoint, what will change realistically? Well, one thing that has to change if we're talking about health care inequities is that we really need to think about dismantling our current system and building a system where everybody gets screened regardless, you know, for certain conditions, not just people who have the best insurance plans. We need to be screening more and thinking about early prevention efforts. We need to start thinking about our schools and about our kids who are in these high poverty schools and not having the opportunity to receive the type of education that they need to receive. We need to think about how to train our police officers, first of all, and as I am a psychologist as well, so I know in my clinical training, even though I identify as being biracial, and I'm African-American and my mother's white, I know that I have my own biases ingrained just because I'm human. And one of the aspects of my training is to confront those biases and to be aware of them. Because anytime we're going to encounter people who are different from who we are, we are likely to have a bias against that, that, against that, that we're not even aware of. And it may, may be completely unintentional. And that's the same type of training that we need in our police force is to really, you know, recognize what is really a threat. It's not just because it's a black man, you know, or a person of color. Just because they're a person of color, that does not assign any type of threat to them. So we need to sort of start that training early on in order to help sort of push through some of these um, barriers that we've had for many, many years. So, Professor, in your own life, your own orbit, your community, your family, your friends, how do you deal with that? Oh, <laughs> well, I have a really good close group of people who I can count on and I can vent to. And sometimes you just got to let it out and you need to have somebody to listen to that. And I think that's the problem 
particularly in the black community among black women, um, we are expected to be really strong and we're expected to just kind of pick up, you know, um, and keep going. And that is an attitude, a cultural attitude that has been sort of placed on us for many years, but it is okay to break down and it is okay to reach out to people who are going to understand you and be able to empathize. And that is what I do um, in order to deal with it. I also use my work to sort of fight against some of these issues or I'll write articles. Like I try to do what I can to get the message out because it's made me very, you know, upset for years, but this is my catharsis is being able to talk to you and to write articles about these issues because they are very important. And I think that is one step that people can do. Some do it through art, some do it through music, whatever that outlet is, it's absolutely necessary. But I wonder if we as a country and as a society, are we still paying the price, the U S for the stain of slavery? Oh, absolutely. We're still paying the price because when you really think about, I mean, there have been, I don't want to downplay the amount of change that has happened since the civil rights era, but I was just doing a a talk today and I was looking through some of the old um, uh, historical events such as the Little Rock Nine, you know, and watching those kids going to school and and all and all the just the backlash that that was occurring simply because these kids wanted an education and being denied that and even though we've come a long way from for example that instance we still see blacks in disproportionate numbers of high poverty schools and not receiving the type of education that they deserve. So yes, we have come away from not being able to get an education at all, but we also have to look at where we've become. So when you ask about slavery, the idea of slavery has to do with this person's inferior. Therefore they work for me. They work for some who is more superior than them. And we see this all the time in the workforce when it comes to workplace discrimination, when it comes to inequitable health care. So, yes, I think we're still paying the price. You're a psychologist, not a political scientist. But as you look at the election of Barack Obama in 2008, first African-American president, more recently Vice President Kamala Harris, who is of uh, African and Indian descent, Where does that put the country? Has that helped us move forward? I think it has helped us move forward um, in the sense that younger, the younger generation can look at people like Obama and can look at people like Kamala Harris and say, oh, I want to be like them. But that's not enough. You know, having, I mean, it's great to have a black president and it's great to have a black vice president, without a doubt. But we need to see this more in everyday society. When we look at leadership positions, whether it's in academic institutions like where I'm at, where it's large companies of CEOs, 
how many of those leaders are individuals of color? Not very many. It's still an issue, and it's a pipeline issue that we really need to look at and fix and not think that the problem solved because we do have a black vice president. The problem's not solved because Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts. We haven't solved the problem yet, but we are moving in the right direction. And so the problem will be solved when? Complete the sentence. When we come together and and truly embrace the idea of equity and social justice in a genuine way, not just lip service, but in a wholehearted, genuine way. But what would you say to those people who would not accept that? And you know that there are racist individuals in this country who would never accept that. What do you tell them? Well, it it will come to a point where even if they don't like it, they're going to have to accept it because we just, our, our country, we have growing numbers of ethnic racial minorities, first of all. But the second that being racist, I believe, hits your pocketbook and hits your personal finances in some way, either you know, if you're not, if you're showing bias in the workplace or, or racist, you know, discrimination, you, you're you reprimanded in some way. And it doesn't take a whole army to be able to get, you know, some type of justice served for you. I think that the second it hits people where it matters to them the most, then I think attitudes can change. I think that once people understand the importance of social equity, then, and and, and on a personal level, it can benefit them, they may change that attitude. Now, you're always going to have some people that are stubborn, but they will be forced just simply by the way societal shifts are occurring to go in that direction, even if they don't want to. As we conclude our conversation, why did you pursue this area of study, and, and what is your background? Well, my my background, I am I am Caucasian, uh, sort of British background, and also African American. So my father is African American from Mississippi, and my mom's Caucasian. And so, growing up biracial, I saw a lot. I saw a lot of um, racism, discrimination among my family members. People didn't really know what I was, so I felt very ostracized. So I know that feeling very well. And so I think when I got to a position where I wasn't concerned about going against the grain anymore once I sort of got tenure in academia, I said to myself, I'm going to go full-fledged in this and really speak my views. And some people won't like it. Some people won't publish it, but that's okay. I'm not afraid to speak out because it's absolutely necessary. Once, you know, and, and I encourage all, you know, of my sort of colleagues and my mentees who are, you know, persons of color, to really use the work to put it out there and not to fall to this 
complicity of, you know, just accepting the way things are. I don't think it, I think it's time to no longer simply accept it and really try to help to get the word out in a scientific, logical way to help people understand what a big problem this really is. And when you speak out in the classroom on the USC campus, what kind of reaction does that get? Well, I've been very supported at USC by this. I've been very, because USC really has a mission to improve these issues. But I can tell you years ago when I first started out and I would give talks at conferences about, you know, discrimination, stereotyping, racism, there wasn't really a huge interest. And in fact, it wasn't considered to be really scientific. It was more oh, you know, she's talking about things that people shouldn't do. And now, more recently, we've been able to do studies showing how racism and discrimination affects people at the biological level. And that's when it got some traction. And that's when people started to become interested. Because now I'm not just saying this is something people shouldn't do. I'm saying this is something that is actually affecting biology and health. And so I've been very happy with with how receptive people have been, but unfortunately it it has come off of the backs of people like George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. Unfortunately, it has taken those events for people to take what I do seriously. And of course, so much just in the last week that we have been reflecting on, not only coronavirus, but also the death of George Floyd and the conviction of the police officer charged with his murder. Professor April Thames is from the University of Southern California, USC, joining us from Long Beach. Thank you for joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thank you so much. And a reminder, this podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.